time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm alright, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, cause it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into hour two of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to shift gears a little bit and look to the stars. There is a new book called A History of the Universe in 21 Stars and Three Imposters by uh, Giles Sparrow, who joins me now by phone from, uh, from London, I believe. Giles, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for the intro, and uh, great music to be played in on. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might find that familiar. Um, I'll, just, I'll just point out quickly uh, to the listeners that uh, Giles studied astronomy at University College London. He is the author of over 20 popular science books for both adults and children. He lives in uh, East London. And this new book, I'm, I'm fascinated by the title, Giles. It's uh, A History of the Universe in 21 Stars and Three Imposters. And after what happened with, uh, with Pluto... Um, you know, that makes me a little concerned about those three imposters. <laughs> yes, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it's funny how these things have changed. I mean, the the three imposters in this book are, they're kind of, they're objects that were once thought to be stars, and they turn out to be, they turn out to be things that are bigger and, and you know, brighter, but much further away in this case. So it's not like Pluto where it turned out to be 
smaller and less significant, I guess, than than they thought at the time when they thought it was going to be like a big ninth planet. And then the more they looked at it, they realised it wasn't, you know, wasn't so big. And then they thought, um, and then they found that there were other ones out there that were. It's funny because the reason Pluto got demoted finally was because they thought they'd found one that was bigger than Pluto, and then they thought, well, either we've got to make this the tenth planet, or <laughs> or we have to we have to kind of draw a line somewhere. And so they went through all of that, and then when they flew past Pluto um, five six years ago, they sent the New Horizons space probe past it, and they measured it, and it turned out Pluto was bigger than this other thing they found after all. So they could did, have avoided all that fuss. Did it get its planet status back? It didn't, sadly. No, it didn't <laughs> Poor Pluto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this uh, this book, A History of the Universe in 21 Stars and Three Imposters, is this A History of the Universe Part 1, and will there be a Part 2? Oh, there's a question. Um, <laughs> I try to be, it's, well... It's about stars, uh, it's about the universe, galaxies, and so on and so forth. It's not so much about planets and and our solar system. I've got a little, um, it's, <laughs> this is putting the cart before the horse, but um, but yeah, um, you usually end end with asking me, oh, do I have anything else in mind? But yeah, I've, I'm kind of thinking about, I've, I've got another book I'd very much like to write about the history of the solar system and what we what we know about it and and the planets and huh. so on. So, so that might be part two or part part one a. <laughs> um, Giles, how how much can we tell about the universe in twenty one stars when there are as uh, um, oh shoot, I, I can see his face and I can't think of his name. But uh, as as we've uh, been, Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, who pointed yeah. out that there were billions and billions, billions and billions. Um, yeah. <laughs> but 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 how much can you really tell by picking out these twenty one stars and what makes them significant? It's it's interesting because the thing is that stars, you know, they in general they do follow rules, and they're, they're all, every star is every star in the sky is unique. But you can kind of look at certain ones and say okay there's a whole you know there's a whole load that fall into this this general kind of class and so you can you can kind of divide it up that stars pass through different phases of their lives and so you can look at young stars and middle-aged stars like the sun and and stars that are getting older and going through like life changes and um and then there are differences depending on how much how much mass they've got, how much matter is is inside them, that plays kind of a crucial role in how they develop over time. And so you can look at these different blocks and say, okay, well, here's a star that's... I, I kind of picked out stars that could be representative of, you know, of billions of stars at a, t- you know, at a time, really. Um, and then I I guess my my selection, the ones that are in the book... I wanted it to be things that, wherever possible, are things that you can go out and see, and you don't particularly need any any special equipments. You know, most of the stars there are naked eye ones, and we've got lovely little star maps that a friend of mine drew um, to show you how to find them. And and then you know, there's other things. Sometimes you need 
sometimes you need binoculars and there's a couple of things in there that just to fill out the story we had to have things that you need a telescope to see but I, so I kind of picked out ones that were you know that hopefully are accessible to people and also ones that have kind of just played a played a big role in the history of astronomy and how we've actually come to come to understand these things you know because there's some stars just seem to attract people come back to them again and again and keep looking and finding out new stuff about them are giles are you as odd as i am by how much early early astronomers got right mm. it's yeah it's interesting it's um yeah i know they've you know considering what they were working with it's it's surprising how many things you know they did, yeah. You know, they did get correct, and where they led to clever conclusions. And do you have anything particularly in mind, or? Well, no. I was just thinking of of people, you know, like Galileo, and and you know, going way back. Is it were they able to just see a lot more in the night sky because of the absence of light pollution? I guess you know, to some to some extent. And you know you can see if you if you get out somewhere really dark, then you can see you know about three four thousand stars in the sky if you've got good good eyesight without anything to without anything to work with um it's yeah it's surprising how much how much they did figure out i mean a lot of it was kind of mixed up with astrology, which was kind of when astronomy started out there wasn't like this dividing line between astrology and horoscopes and things and then astronomy being like the sciencey thing that I I deal with, you know, most of the time, it was all kind of mixed up. But they were looking at they were looking at things like how the planets moved through the you know moved through the sky, and they got to the they got to the point before you know pretty much before before the telescope was invented, it didn't need the telescope for them to be able to work out that hang on, no, the planets. You know the planets must be moving around the sun. It wasn't that everything was everything was moving around Earth, and they got you know they had some very precise instruments so you could measure exactly where something was in the sky. You know even without having a telescope to you know to look at it through and like narrow down exactly where you were pointing. Yeah, I just I I just always find that you know so remarkable that. Um you know, in the in the very early times, that you know, of course, what else was there to do but look up at the sky? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they had they had a little time, like we have lately. Um, mm. But uh, the uh, getting back to this idea of um, you know what we what we can learn about the universe through these stars. And of course, the the question that that everyone always wants to ask is, you know, can we tell if there is life out there, and and what would life be like? Oh, that's a that's a deep question. I think I think all you can really do is kind of you can play the play the odds and the, um and just kind of work out you know work it out from there, and you think well as you know it's it's got to be very likely that there is, and but then you know we just we just don't know enough about you know how life evolved on Earth, and I guess certainly with some things because we've only got one 
we've only really got one example to to work from. We can only look at Earth and draw some conclusions. But the more there was a guy called um, Frank Drake, um, who was a radio astronomer and was a pioneer of this whole movement. He was he was a pal of Carl Sagan's and um, get, you know this whole SETI search for extraterrestrial intelligence thing. And he came up with a very clever equation that allowed you to kind of plug in, you know, like the probability, you work out like the probability of, you know, how many stars are being born in, in our galaxy each year, how many of those are going to give rise to a solar system, how many of those are going to have a planet in, like, with the right conditions to have life on it, and, you know, and then, you know, questions like, yeah, and then will life arise, will intelligence arise, and can you, and he came up with this very, very clever thing that it, it looks impressive, and it looks like, okay, you just plug the numbers into that. But the problem is we don't, we don't really know what the numbers are. And we, we gradually we've been figuring out things over, you know, over the past few decades. We've learnt more. And it's, I feel old when I think, when, when I was you know, studying astronomy at college, and we didn't know that there were planets around other stars. We hadn't, it was kind of a, it's kind of a big mystery at the time that they hadn't found them and they'd used methods that they thought would you know would have unearthed them and so people were starting to ask you know hang on so why why is it the sun's got this further system and why do other stars not not seem to have them and then you know, four years you know four years four or five years later mid-90s you know a french guy called michel mayo outside swiss rather who um, won the Nobel Prize in, I think, 2019. He was finally... They took a while to catch up. But he came up with this very clever way of making much more sensitive measurements. And, you know, suddenly these planets started to pop up, the evidence. And, and now we know, you know, there's, we've got about 4,000 or more of them that we know about. And so, so I think now that we know there are lots of planets out there, Four thousand planets, or or uh, solar systems. Four thousand planets, um, I think. Yeah, roughly, probably. Yeah, but skinny on is. I think it's about four thousand four hundred. There's a there's a website where they keep a tally of exactly how many have been confirmed at this point. But you know, obviously there are. You know, there are clearly billions. You know, probably an awful lot. You know, probably about half the stars in the sky have got planets orbiting around them and we just you know we just can't detect them because you need you need to have certain conditions you know to to be lucky enough to detect a planet and so that that probably that narrows down the field of ones you can locate but i think now we know that there are there are all these planets out there and we're also you know we're learning that life on earth seems to exist in weird you know it can pop up in weird places where you'd never thought it would before, like in hot springs and you know, all these places that seem like they're toxic to toxic to life. Oh, and recently deep um, in the ice in uh, Antarctica. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and you look. Hey, and, Giles, you know, and, Giles, you know, I have to. System. I have to put a comma here. I'm sorry to interrupt, mm. but I have a break coming up. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we yeah, can talk some more? Yeah. Okay, my guest is Giles Sparrow. He is the author of A History of the Universe in 21 Stars and Three Imposters. And we'll be back with more right Everybody's after this. Everybody's doing. 
it on brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue my conversation with the author of a new book called A History of the Universe in 21 Stars and Three Imposters, Giles Sparrow, who joins me by phone from London. Giles, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. No problem. Um, just before the break, we were just kind of uh, kicking around a little bit the notion of uh, is there life out there, which is something everybody, whenever you talk about astronomy, that subject is going to come up. Um, are, are contemporary astronomers, are they open-minded to what life might be, or are they like some of us uh, um, muggles, uh, you know, sort of hoping to find life that's very much like our own. I think you have to, I think they have to be open-minded. And this is the thing I was, I think I was just touching on before, before you went to the break. Um, the idea that there's planets in, or moons out in the outer reaches of our own solar system that have got, you know, icy, you know, icy conditions, but they've got liquid water oceans underneath the surface and, so, you know, there could be microbes and things there. I think it's just, it's hard to tell what's, you know, and a lot of it's going to depend on what the kind of evolutionary pressures are going to be of the conditions that you have there. And, you know, and everything on everything on Earth is, you know, an awful lot of life on Earth follows this kind of symmetrical pattern where we, you know, we have two, you know, or double sets of limbs, you know, two, four, six or whatever. And these things seem to have evolved, and you think, well, that kind of makes sense, and you can you can look at you know other conditions and think, okay, you know, what conditions would you have to have on other planets where they, you know, to to be why would why would you have you know anything different from that? But I think you know we can tend to be a bit um, uh, earth centric, egocentric, I guess. It's you know. I doubt that any aliens that are out there are going to look like us, but with bumpy, bumpy ridges on their foreheads. <laughs> the Klingons are probably going to be <laughs> right. Exactly, um, and and that's uh, you know one of the things that we uh, you know in Star Trek, for example, um, you know they they reference M class planets, which means mm. the conditions are are right to have life on them as we know it here on Earth. Mm. And a lot of the stuff that I see published, and, and maybe just because it, it garners more uh, uh, pop culture interest, are those discoveries of planets that, that are evolving with conditions similar to mm. Earth. Yes, yeah. I think we're, yeah, I think it's understandable that we are, yeah, we we kind of always gravitate towards that that we we follow these these planets that are that are 
as close to earth as possible. I mean, you know, I, just, I remember a few years ago um, when they announced the discovery um, of a planet around Proxima Centauri, which is the very closest planets to, you know, or very closest star to, to Earth. And it's this tiny, faint red dwarf, you know, star they call a red dwarf, which you can't see without a fairly decent, you know, pair of binoculars or telescope. They didn't discover it until 1915, despite the fact it's on our doorstep. And then they found, like, three, four years ago, they, they discovered there was a planet orbiting around it, and it's roughly Earth-sized, and so there was a, there, and it's kind of orbiting at the right distance, that despite the star being so faint and feeble, it could have, you know, it could roughly have liquid water on the on the surface. So I think, you know, these things, this idea that, you know, maybe if you have those kind of conditions, then you could have Earth-like life. I think that's, it's understandable that we kind of gravitate towards that, but... But then on the other hand, you've got these amazing other planets, like one of the ones in the book, um, uh, orbiting a star called Helvetios, and it was the very first one that they discovered. And it turned out to be this weird thing called a hot Jupiter, um, which is a planet about the size of Jupiter, give or take, which is, and Jupiter's the largest planet in our solar system, and, it, and it's this big ball of gas. Maybe, maybe it doesn't have a... You know, Earth-sized core in the middle, but it's so much bigger than Earth. And all our little, all our neat ideas about how the solar system had evolved said, okay, you get these things, and they're always going to be further from, further away from their star. And you get rocky planets close to the, close to the star, and these gas giants further out. And they found this thing, and it's, it's about the size of Jupiter, but it orbits around its star in about every three days or something like that. So, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's so hot that its atmosphere is kind of boiling away into space. And so you think, how did that get there? And so sometimes even if it's not, a, not an Earth-like planet or anything that you can really imagine you'd get life on, it still raises really interesting questions about you know, how how stars and how solar systems evolve. When you're looking at, at these stars, what is the, the significant um, fact about them? Is it that, um, is it how they formed and how they interact with other planetary bodies? Um, in my book, you mean, the, um, the ones that I, yeah. I guess I chose, they're, um, yeah, they're, they're, it's a mix of things. It's, you know, sometimes it's just this historical accident that they, they turn out to be the very first of a type of thing that was found. And sometimes it's that you could, you know, it's something that you can go and look at. And sometimes they're just interesting in their own, in their own right. And sometimes they, they just have told us an awful lot about the universe in, in general, it's, um, I mean, for instance, I'm just trying to think, I'm one of the, one of my favorite stars is this insignificant thing. Because what I, what I like about the story of astronomy and how it, I think it applies more widely and is interesting is that often it's kind of, it's, it's a form of lateral thinking because we're stuck, we're stuck here on Earth. And aside from, okay, we can send 
space probes to other you know planets in our solar system and it takes years for them to get there and um and then very occasionally we get you know bits of space rock that fall to earth but other than that really what we're um relying on to learn about the universe is just the light that is coming to us from incredibly distant parts of the you know parts of space um which we're never going to be able to go and you know until they invent a warp drive i guess um, we're never <laughs> going to be able to go and we're never going to be able to go and measure these things up close so we just have to be very very clever with what's you know what information we do get given in the form of light from space and just find clever ways and you know apply a bit of lateral thinking to um to learning about it and you know to getting the you know rinsing the most information out of out of this out of out of this light that we can and in the case of this star sixty one signi it's not you know it's it's nothing nothing to write home about you can see it with the naked eye and if you look at it with binoculars then you you'll see that it's a double star there's two stars that are quite you know very similar in brightness and quite close to each other and it's turned out to be just incredibly important because it's the first star other than the sun where we were able to actually work out the distance to it and kind of so we proved that you know for the first time that stars were you know other objects like the sun but incredibly far away and part of how we did that was just this simple thing that after people have been looking at it for a few you know for a few decades i guess um they've you know they were mapping out the positions of the stars and they thought hang on this this one's moving and there were a few other ones that were that were moving very slowly in relation to the the pattern of the constellations and you know where they should be and they realized that you know stars some stars move quite fast and some stars move quite slowly on and so just a little bit of lateral thinking they they kind of thought okay well well, if everything's moving on average at the same at the same kind of speed through space, or if we just apply the law of averages and just say everything's moving at random, then the only explanation for why these things are going to be moving faster you know, uh, than the other ones in the you know is because they're closer to us, and so it's just like a um, a line of sight effect that things that are nearby are going to appear to move faster than things that are further away um it goes back to you know that was one of the first things that i the first questions i remember asking about astronomy was you know sitting in the back of my parents car and you know asking so how come, how come all the hedges and trees are kind of going past us but the moon is keeping up with us and it's always staying in the same place in the sky and it's, it's that kind of principle so they thought okay maybe this thing is quite close to it you know quite nearby <laughs> I, i've heard people describe that as uh it it appeared as though the moon were following me yes exactly <laughs> yeah <laughs> you could get paranoid <laughs> um, um speaking of of uh, paranoia uh, <laughs> when we look and by we, I, I mean not just the the science community, but now we have um, entrepreneurs and business people that are getting into space exploration. Mm. 
um, are are they looking to um, I don't know to develop other planets for potential human life, or is it? Do you think it's it's uh, of more importance that there are resources that we could benefit from? Uh, I'm not sure how much of it is. You know, for some of these guys, certainly, I think there's an element of it being an ego trip. Um, <laughs> but I, it's kind of, it's kind of a mix. And you know, I, I think going to going to other planets, going you know, going to Mars. You know, there's a there's kind of a science case for just learning about learning about another planet and seeing how it's how it's changed. You know, how it's developed over time, and you know, that tells us more about Earth. Um, and then there's a case for, like, the don't have all your eggs in one basket kind of situation that, you know, we have increasingly, I guess, we're aware that Earth is pretty fragile. I mean, even apart from what we, you know, what we may be doing to it ourselves, you've got the, you know, the risk that occasionally every, every few million years there's a chance that a um, fairly big space rock is going to come along and smash into the planet and... You know, it could could do to us what it did to the dinosaurs, and so yeah, there's a there's a kind of case for okay, if you've got people on other planets, then okay, if if Earth goes, you know, it gets you know wiped out or reset, then we'll carry on. We can carry on somewhere else. But um, I think I don't think there's going to be a resource thing. Aside from aside from the idea that, and I guess you've seen the the Martian, or read you know read the book or seen the movie, the Matt Damon movie, yeah, which is which is great about you, know, you get all this you know real science nerdy stuff about how they um, how they make use of the resources on Mars, and you can you can make fuel so you can come back from Mars in theory, and you know the more we discover about it, and the more we find there's ice in you know buried in the permafrost there. And so there's stuff we can use, but I don't think there's anything that's going to be incredibly practical to kind of bring back to Earth. But then you look at, um, you know, maybe you know closer to closer to Earth, and possibly with the Moon, there's talk. You know, there's it's kind of somewhat fantastical, but you know, there's this abundance of this rare element or isotope called helium three that's kind of been accumulating on the moon just as it gets bombarded with radiation from the sun over billions of years. And this stuff, if, we, if they could find a way of mining it and bringing it back to Earth, it could be the secret of, you know, making nuclear fu- of nuclear fusion. Potentially, it could be a, uh, a way of using that to generate kind of cheap, clean energy for everyone. Safely. So that's a, yes, yeah, in theory. Safely, apart from the fact, I guess you've got to land it. You know, you've got to find a way of bringing it back to Earth. But it's not, it's not radioactive. It's as such. So it's it's like fusion is the process that powers stars. In fact, yeah. So it's it's kind of jamming together small lightweight elements, and you get them. You know, you you force them together, and they make slightly heavier elements. And most stars shine by turning. Hydrogen, which is the lightest element in the universe, into helium, which is the next lightest, and you get a little bit of excess energy that is given off in that process. 
And if you do it enough times, it's enough to keep a star like the sun shining for billions of years, pumping out all this light and heat that is really what makes life on Earth possible. So if we could harness that, as opposed to fission, which is the kind of form of nuclear nuclear power that we're familiar with now, which is kind of taking these heavy, quite dangerous elements and and break, you know controlling how they break apart and getting energy out of that way, and so it's yeah, so it's it's possible, but I mean that's definitely in the realms of sci-fi, um, and I guess the possibly nearer term thing is going to be mining asteroids that there's certainly you know there's been investigations but there's elements on earth over billions of years that they've you know that we've had weathering and all these chemical processes because earth is a complex planet any any elements that are near the surface tend to get mixed up and cause up in chemical reactions and gradually kind of hidden so you have to do a lot of processing to get things out um, and stuff that is on asteroids, which are the raw materials that the solar system formed from, they, you know, it's it's kind of just stayed there. It kind of clumped together, you know, four billion years ago or more, and then has not, you know, has not really changed since. So in theory, there's all this stuff up there, and if you could just get to a relatively small asteroid, you could you could just mine it for raw materials a lot more efficiently than you could stuff, you know, that, um, you know, get stuff out of the earth. And I guess, you know, the other thing with, you know, mining asteroids is because most of them are very small. Um, gravity isn't really an issue. So you can, you know, so you can kind of launch stuff off this asteroid quite easily and then just drop it back into, you know, drop it back to earth using its own gravity. And provided you can kind of control where it lands, you'll you know you could potentially have quite a good commercial operation harvesting an asteroid. So, so there's talk about that in the in the relatively near future, going and scooping up one of these things, you know, perhaps a few hundred meters across, sticking a rocket engine onto it, towing it back to Earth orbit, you know, and then. Gradually, you just mine it, get, get some robotic mining machines out there. Um, sadly, I don't think it'll be um, Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck <laughs> and the guys from Armageddon. Well, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's easy to, you know, joke a little bit about uh, science and science fiction, but hmm. it's, you know, we've never lived in a time where you know an independent citizen could jettison a car into space well quite yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's it's hard to tell the difference between what's real and and what's made up and and that yeah. and and that kind of reminds me that that um a lot of the things that have been developed um by science and and in particular with regard to space exploration have become the equipment of our everyday lives computers and microwave ovens and cell phones mm. and things um and and it's uh you know merely a uh, nod to pop culture that all of these things end up looking like things that were imagined on star trek yeah but yeah. but um 
I, I, I think that's just a uh, hat tip to science fiction by real scientists saying, well, we've got this thing that we can do. Let's make it look like this thing from Star Trek. Oh, um, I think so, yeah. Um, I think people are inspired by it. And, yeah. But I, know, I, I, I have been myself. Is that the... Are these things that we benefit from in our everyday lives the best justification for supporting space exploration? Uh, that's, a, ooh, no, that's, a, that's a really tricky one. And I, um, and I think the spin-offs are, yeah, and, and have been amazing. I mean, if we hadn't gone to space, we all, you know, we all walk around with this mini GPS receiver in our pockets these days, so, you know, in the form of a cell phone that's, you know, doing so much, you know, to... Yeah, we've gotten yeah, a lot more out of that. We've gotten a lot more yeah. out of that research than just Tang. Mm, yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tang and Kevlar, those were the two that <laughs> used to be. Um, yeah, so I, know, I think there are, you know, huge benefits from that, you know, from that point of view. And I think, I I hope there's still room to say, okay, no, we, you know, we do it for the the knowledge and, you know, just for, to expand the frontiers. Because the thing is, you never know what's going to, you know, you never know what's going to come up and turn out to be, you know, to have some important use, you know, decades down the line. I mean, nobody, nobody thought when they were building CERN, you know, the big atom smasher in, you know, Switzerland, you know, Whenever it was, I, I forget, but yeah, I guess in the seventies or something like that. Nobody thought that you know just because of the the need to handle the data for that in an efficient way, that um, you know Tim Berners Lee then invented the World Wide Web as a result of that, and you know this this completely random spin-off from someone looking at you know trying to solve a solve basically a data handling problem in a in a very obscure science projects that you know most people would say well what you know what do i care what the fundamental particles of the universe are <laughs> um, <laughs> and you know and then yeah that's obviously you know shaped all our lives for the last you know 20 30 years well it's a big universe and we could spend an awful lot of time talking about it giles but we're almost out of time and i always try to let listeners uh, know where they can find out more about you, your book, what we've been talking about. Um, Giles, do you have a website where people can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future? Uh, yes, I do. I'm just trying to remember the. It's, it's sadly, um, sadly, it's just GilesSparrow.com, and sadly, it's um, it's horribly out of date, and I keep meaning to. <laughs> Keep meaning to update it, but I seem to always get some, you know, get people, um, for, you know, get uh, I'm too busy with uh, doing writing projects and things like that. But um, GilesSparrow.com, and it's G-I-L-E-S and Sparrow, like the bird. So I'm there. I'm uh, at GSWrites on Twitter, uh, if that's your thing. And, um, and yeah, my book is available from... Uh, AmazonBookshop.org and, and all good booksellers, I hope. Well, Giles, thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thanks for spending this time with me this morning. That was great. I really enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Thank you. 
Giles Sparrow, the author of A History of the Universe in 21 Stars and Three Imposters. More of the Tom Sumner program is straight ahead. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. 
The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner Program.com. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Well, there are many shows on the air which are basically interview shows, and they start out in a very austere setting. Uh, there's the interviewer, he sits behind a desk, and in the background somewhere, some figure in the news sits. He's later in the show blinded by a spotlight. <laughs> I like to present one of these shows. They start off very dramatically. Something like this. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Wallace, Nightline. Our guest in the studio tonight is Dr. Warner von Warner, one of the many German missile scientists involved in our American missile program. Dr. von Warner, I suppose the question most often asked you, you were involved in the German missile program. You're now involved in our missile program, was the fact that you were involved in the German missile program a matter of political conviction, or was this political expediency on your part? <laughs> oh boy, that one, huh? <laughs> Actually, I didn't, I didn't have that much to do with it, to tell you the truth. Um, this is back around 1940. I was working at a beer garden in Stuttgart. <laughs> and like on Friday night, you know, the waitresses and the waiters, we'd go to one of the girls' pads, you know, and uh, <laughs> order some pizzas and some schnapps and get half gas, you know. <laughs> and I used to fool around with these inventions, you know, and I'd take this tin can and put a firecracker underneath it, and i like the firecracker, and the thing go four or five feet up in the air, you know. And everybody'd say, what the hell was that? Or what a nut that Warner is. Somebody want to get Warner's hat, you know, something like that. Except there's one party, a little guy walks over, he's got a little mustache and a <laughs> piece of hair falling on his <laughs> He says, hey, that, uh, that was interesting what you did with a, with a tin can there. <laughs> but uh, but uh, what causes that? Eh? I said, well, see, that's, um, for every action, there's a reaction, you see. And the, the force of the firecracker is it's, see, it's, first of all, it starts toward the floor. Well, the top of your can, see, it's, every time I do it, it jumps forward. He says, what, uh, what do you call that thing there? I said, that's, uh, that's a rocket. It's named after my landlord, Irving Arkett. 
Alvarez's eyes about three months behind an orange, you know, and comes a knock at the door and he says, look, Varner, you know, you got to knock off with the firecrackers in the middle of the night, you know, because the neighbors are complaining. And don't hand me the Madame Curie bit, you know what I mean? <laughs> what her landlord wanted to do about her rent, that's his business. I want my rent, see? I said, look, I'm working on an invention. If it works out, I'll name it after you. He says, you're going to call it an Irving? <laughs> No, I'm going to call it a rocket. So anyway, the guy at the party, little mustache, piece of hair falling in his eyes. He says, that would make a terrific weapon, you know that? <laughs> I said, well, you'd have to get out on top of the guy. <laughs> and, you know, you'd have to hit him in the face or something like that. But with a tin can, they really hurt him. I think your big problem is gonna be getting that close to the guy, you know? <laughs> he says, no, no, what, what, if, what if we took a hundred firecrackers and a great big tin can, see? I said, well, we saw to that, but your problem there is, see, by the time you light the fuse on the last firecracker, He said, look, the, the, reason, the reason I'm asking you all this, I'm headed to German people. I said, oh. <laughs> I said, so, you know, congratulations. I, you know. <laughs> I hadn't seen a paper in a couple of days, so I took a verse. <laughs> he says, would you like to be involved in our missile program? You know. I said, well, you know, I got a pretty good thing going at the, at the beer garden. You know. He says, look. <laughs> He says, it's a civil service job. It's three fifty a month. When you're 55, you go down to Baden Baden and forget the whole scene. <laughs> so anyway, all they want me to do, I sign these requisitions. Liquid oxygen, I don't know what it is, I'm signing Warner von Warner, and every month, three fifty, there it is, like clockwork. <laughs> anyway, make a long story short, we lose the war. <laughs> The Americans come to me, you know, and I've been getting offers from the Russians and all that, and they say, look, Warner, you know, we've seen your name on some of the requisitions, and uh, how'd you like to be involved in the American missile program, you know? I said, look, actually, I didn't have that much to do with it, you see. I mean, I was at this party in Stuttgart, see? <laughs> they said, never mind, never mind, we need a name. No, we... So anyway, I, I, I took the job, and uh, there it is, four fifty a month, when I'm 55, I go down to Fort Lauderdale, and <laughs> it's a pretty good deal. Well, uh, Dr. Von Warner, our time is running out on us. Uh, we have now put a man in space. The Russians, some two or three weeks before that, had put a man in space. Was this the eventual plan of the German missile program to put a man in space? Oh, we, we put a man in space. Oh, sure, back in uh, 1940. I put my brother-in-law, Herman, I put him on. <laughs> Well, now, that's amazing because, of course, the, the big problem we found uh, putting a man in space was the problem of reentry. And uh, apparently in 1940, you had already solved that problem. Well, what problem is this you're talking about? <laughs> well, Dr. Von Warner, we want to thank you very much for stopping by. 
and wish you continued success. Well, thank you very much. Now, are you going to give me the money or will you send a check to me? <laughs> This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com From the Tom Sumner Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> <laughs> 